Welcome to Pitmaster, an old Virginia smoke podcast. I'm your host, Luke Darnell. I have been blessed to go around the country and have gotten to meet some of the best barbecue pitmasters of all time, both past and present, and this episode's guest is definitely that. Our guest today is Rod Gray from Pellet Envy. Rod has been a fixture in barbecue for a long time and continues to have a heavy influence both through teaching and his Pellet Envy rubs and sauces. He's also a fantastic human with a lot of great stories and words of wisdom for today's barbecue cooks. So please join me in welcoming Rod Gray from Pellet Envy. Well, Rod, thank you for being on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I really am. I'm watching you do all your stuff, your your YouTube videos and your cooking and your catering and now your podcast. This is this is cool doing this podcast is something that I've thought about for years. And finally, you know, during the quarantine, you know, started putting everything together that I needed to do it. And I've really enjoyed the conversations that I've had so far, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't looking forward to this one. It's at the top of my list. So it's just a great, it's a great to have you on here. And I go back to the time where you and I really first got to know each other a little bit in Wisconsin when we went to the supper club. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was fun. That was, I, I didn't forget about it, but I, it wasn't in the front of my mind. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we rode up with uh, Darren and Sherry and Darren set me up for this terrible joke. And I was like, I can't tell this joke to Rod Gray. <laughs> and uh, he kept pushing and pushing. So I eventually told it and you laughed hysterically. And then we were, friends from there on so <laughs> yeah that was uh, the supper club thing is um is unique to me we don't have that kind of stuff in kansas so that was a cool experience um yeah. that place was packed and different and that was a cool experience i had never even been in that part of the country and i was like what are you guys talking about supper club like i had no idea and it was great and the food was really good and we had a great time yeah Drank some Wisconsin beer, and it was a good time. <laughs> but one of the things that I learned throughout the course of that evening is that you are really into routines and habits and rituals. And I wanted to kind of dive in there. And what can you share that you've established for yourself in terms of rituals and routines and habits during competitions? We don't have enough time. It's all <laughs> based on rituals and routines and habits. Uh, some people call it a program. They're like, you know, talk to me about your barbecue program. I've never used that term myself, but everything about me is about a ritual, a routine, or a schedule. What I learned early on in barbecue is that is that repeatability is is paramount. You you cook a great brisket one weekend, but you can't get back there the next weekend. Sure, it could be the piece of meat, but if you do it the next six times and you think you're doing exactly the same and you still can't get back there, it's not the meat anymore. It's, it's, it's your program. It's your routine. And, and so all through my barbecue career, I've tried to do two things. I've tried to create a process. That's what I like to call it, a process that is repeatable. And I like to refine that process to be as simple as possible, reasonably possible, for the purpose of repeatability. Because if you're a consistent cook, you'll hit the tables on the right days and you'll win the contest on the right days. 
you won't win every table and you won't win every contest, but you'll win your share and maybe more. I don't know what I did that evening to impress that upon you, but you're absolutely right. So you're very <laughs> observant. I will say that. Yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, when I meet somebody new and if I pick up on something immediately and and that was one of the things that I picked up in, throughout the course of our evening. But I also know that you're big into music and you're big into sound. And Do you have music preferences that you listen to while you're cooking? No, I don't. I, I'm into a lot of music, but 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 I'm I'm not deeply into it. You know, some guys can can name every album a band's ever put out, and they can rank them, and they can tell you about whether or not they like the order of the way them, the, you know, the songs are on the album, and they get into the whys and that. I'm not all that. I just enjoy music, and I always have. I, I got away from it. You know, I I really really enjoyed it when I was young. I think my first record was the Beatles come together on a 45. Oh wow. Green Apple on the little label and but and and that progressed. I had a killer stereo and for for, for then for you know the, the 70s I had a killer stereo in high school. I went over to a I grew up in central Kansas so we had to go 30 miles to Salina, Kansas to to do anything, to go to the movie, anything and they had an audio shop and I went in there and, and I discovered Bose and I discovered Pioneer and I bought a Pioneer stack and I couldn't afford 901. That's what I really, really wanted at the time. I, I know that nowadays audiophiles don't think much of that brand and definitely not that speaker, but I could afford 601. So I bought a pair of 601s and the stack and oh, it was just outstanding. And I had that all through high school and you know, nobody has a, not many people in, in that time had that kind of stereo in their bedroom right and uh <laughs> took it to college with me ended up using that thing to dj which was crazy a pair of 601s but they were they were enough and and i even had kids calling me home to abilene kansas where i grew up to dj like their wedding with it and and i was really into music i was actually a dj in a in a bar in in emporia kansas at emporia state university college of 3000 not a big school but and i hated all their music so I brought all my albums in every night, which <laughs> they made fun of me for, but, but ultimately they liked. I would peruse the uh, Rolling Stone top 100 and I'd look for the stuff that was still, that was moving up, wasn't in the top 40, but it was moving up at a good clip. And I would run up to Kansas City and I'd buy that. And then, you know, a month later, this stuff's top 40 and people are like, man, you're, that's incredible. How did you know to play that so soon? And it, it wasn't hard, but it was fun. But <laughs> so a lot of music early on, and then I got away from it. And then I decided I wanted to get back into it. So the last four or five years, I've gotten back into it. Sorry, yeah. hell of a long answer for a short question. But no, yeah. no, no, that's okay. That's okay. We're talking about some habits and routines. What is your competition week look like? Are you very set in what you do day by day in terms of getting prepared to go to a competition i was very set and then got to year 16 17 18 19 and i began to procrastinate so there are some things you can't procrastinate about keeping keeping meat in the pipeline for competition is a is a never-ending thing because there are variables like hey we're not, we didn't get your order in this week you know you're scrambling or so part of it, part of it was always going to be pretty routine. And then I used to get to where I'd not trim till the night before I was going to leave. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, but there was one day I could, it took me all day to get ready. I mean, let's, let's do it this way. Come home from a contest, get home Saturday or Sunday, or maybe Monday, maybe Tuesday. And the first thing you do is clean up the trailer in the pit. So you can go put it back in storage. Cause my people, 
where I live don't allow me to have my trailer in the driveway much, which is a pain. But you get it all ready to go and put it away, so that part's done. Then maybe you get a day off, maybe you don't, but you but I never washed my dishes at a contest. I wash them at home where I get good hot water and can use the dishwasher. And so if I really pushed it all together, I could I could do all my dish work, do all my restocks, because I because my rub box came home with me and prep all my liquids, that's a pain in the butt, but you gotta do it every week and then start trimming. Mm-hmm. And I could do that in one long day. It wasn't the best way to do it, but that's how I did it. I would gather on a day and I would prep on a day and then I'd go again. And you know, spring and fall, you're leaving Thursday morning and and you're getting home Monday night and then you've got Tuesday, Wednesday, and then you're going again, spring and fall. So, So yeah, real routine. And that's what the week would look like. I'd like to take a day off. And some days I did and then pushed it all together the next day. And some days I'd do it right. That makes sense. You know, we we have a schedule. Kim and I have a schedule that we do something every day and try and break it up. But that's the best way to do it. It's been really hard to do it this year, given how contests have been all over the place. And our schedules are all over the place. So, you know, I'm staring at a double this weekend. And I finally got everything today. So I feel good. (laughs) Where's your double? Uh, New Jersey. You know, last, I haven't cooked since last May. Yeah. Since May 19th. Yeah. And it, well, it feels a long time for us. You know, it's been good. We've been getting a lot of stuff done at the house and starting new projects. So nice. It's been great. So I don't know how you are. I, I know some guys on the circuit who could not cook for a month at a time and then they're just right back in that groove. I am not that person. It takes me, it literally probably takes me four or five contests to kind of get in the groove and get my timing and filter out the things that I don't need to be thinking about and only think about the things I do need to be thinking about. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know how you are, but I, I'm not, I think Chris Lilly is a guy who could not cook for six months and then cook just as well as he did six months prior. I can't do that. I can't either. It's not, I have to have the repetition and the, you know, the on-site experience and knowing how everything's going to react. So I'm actually going to cook some chicken tomorrow just to kind of get myself kind of queued up. So <laughs> good idea. It's a good idea. It is. Yeah. 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 So let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about some people in barbecue. <laughs> Uh-oh. All right. Who has impacted your life the most in competition barbecue? Wow. Wow. That's a, that's a question I hadn't, haven't thought about. So here's the thing. When you say impacted my life in barbecue, I, I think where, where my head goes is to my success in barbecue or my rituals in barbecue or this or that. But but I, I don't have one answer there. I think I, I take a little bit from a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But there are some key people in barbecue for me. And there's really too many to name. But the one that comes to mind first and foremost is Johnny Trigg. Johnny and I became friends about 2003, 2004. I met him. He was next to me at a contest in Vegas in 03. And we pulled our whole trailer clear out there to Vegas. Arlie was putting it on. And and it was televised. It was it was it was handled by I think Food Network, and and no one knew Sherry and I. They just a couple of pellet cookers, and I was next to Johnny, and Johnny was next to Mike Davis, and you know here are these teams that you hear about and see, and we're at awards, and they're shoot they're filming it, and we got a call or two I think, which was amazing for us in that crowd, and and lo and behold, all of a sudden there's a camera crew about 12 feet away from us with their camera on us, and they haven't called reserve or grant. And I whispered to Sherry that, that something may be coming, which, you know, that's kind of a letdown that the camera crew needed to get that camera on you and you know, but we win this thing, big contest in Vegas. And 
that put us on the map, but it also got Johnny's attention. And so we became friends after that. And, you know, there were several years there, he and I were traveling around pulling gear pits, uh, Jambo, sorry, I know him as gear pits, and cooking things. And he, he talked me into going to on a, a trip to, oh, where were we? Alab uh, Georgia and Florida out for like four weeks, which he can do in, a, in his 40-foot motorhome. But I'm pulling that little trailer and it's a little right. different. But so, and, and when you're doing that, you're together the whole time. But, but I would say probably Johnny's been the most influential, influential in barbecue for me. It's uh, great asking you that question and that a lot of times when I ask that question to people, you're the answer. <laughs> that's, um, that's very humbling. And I don't, you know, I used to get all these emails from people saying, hey, I won this contest. I want to thank you. You did this, you did that, you did this. And it's like, no you cooked it. I wasn't even there. It's that's on you, but it's, it's humbling when people say that about me. Cause I don't think of myself that way at all. And I know a lot of people have come through the class and I, I really, I know I have a reputation for a good class because I leave it all in that room. And when I'm done, I'm exhausted with the class because I want everyone in that room to take away everything I know about barbecue. And and it's not even possible to do in, in two days and 12 hours or 14 hours or whatever it is. But it's, it's just so humbling when someone, when you tell me something like that, it's just incredible. <laughs> You're also the answer to the next question normally is when you hear the word successful in terms of barbecue, who's the first person that comes to your mind? Wow. So, um, so honestly, I, I don't think of myself as being all that successful. Um, I know we won a lot of contests. I, I mean, I know we did but there are lots of others that did it before me and have done it after me. And we never had the stars line up on that one day and we've never won a major. I mean, I will tell you that for years and years, there'd be one huge money contest somewhere in the country and we would go and we would win it one time a year. We'd win the big money. And, <laughs> and so from that aspect, that felt successful, but we've never won the Jack. I think we've been in the top 10. I've been there nine times. No, I haven't. I've been there. I don't even know. And we've, we've never, we were reserved at the Royal Invitational once. That's close. I've come there. And, and, but yeah, never won a major, but we've won a lot of contests and, and uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it too. And met a lot of great people. And those two things are more important than what we've won or what we haven't won. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things, you know, when you think about success in barbecue, I have, like you said, it depends on what part of barbecue we're talking about. But if you're talking about competition barbecue, there's 30 names that pop into my head. It's, it's staggering how many talented, great cooks there are out there. Yeah, yeah. And you know what, Luke? Here's something that a lot of people don't think about. There are at least 30 more that are equally as talented, but they couldn't devote the time to it that those other 30 could. Yeah. Or their names would be in it too. I feel very lucky that I found a way to make barbecue a full-time thing for me and, and make a a modest living at it and that my wife support supported me as I did it because she could have been like no no you need to go get a real job but there are I see some really 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 great cooks who, who, who only get a cook three or four or five times a year because they just can't do it they have a family and they have a job they have a career so so for all the great cooks that are out there there are equally a number of great cooks who just weren't able to do it yeah I never really thought about it in those terms when we talk about success and talk about you know, switched into barbecue full-time. What do you think has been the most surprising thing to come out of competition barbecue for you? That's a 
big ass question. <laughs> That's a load right there. The most successful thing come out of barbecue for me. Surprising thing. I'm sorry. The most surprising thing. Well, okay. So can we turn this? We're talking about me. Let's talk about me some more. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you something very surprising that I'm surprised I found a way to make a living at, at barbecue. And looking back on it, it wasn't an amazing living, but it was a modest living. But I, 2006, I, I shut down a company that wasn't doing very well. And for three months or so, I was pretty lost because I, I'm such a detail-oriented, organized, planning person that I couldn't see a failure coming, but that was a definite failure, and it came. And so I kind of wandered for about three months, lost. And at the time, Tuffy Stone and I were pretty good friends, and he was going to go do his first ever vending at Hammond, Louisiana. This is, this is Hammond's in March, so it was March 2007, and Tuffy and I talked a lot, and Tuffy believed there was a way I could make a living full-time in barbecue, and I wasn't convinced of that, but um, I drove down to Hammond and helped him vend his very first vending opportunity, and we had a lot of time together at that time, and, and he's the one who said to me, I think you can make a living at this. What about teaching classes, and what about a little bit of catering, and just throw several things together, you know, don't depend on any one thing. And so I drove home from Hammond, which is a 14-hour drive. So I drove home that 14 hours, and I kind of wrapped my head around the idea of doing it. When I got home Sunday night, even though I was exhausted, I started working on my first class. And I published my first class by April for the first weekend in May, and it sold out in, in like three or four days. Wow. And that was, a, that was a light bulb for me. That was when I said, you know what, maybe, maybe this is possible. And then... It wasn't long after that, I heard a rumor that, that a company called Grease Lightning was looking to do some sponsorship and barbecue. And I did the research and reached out to them and they said, yeah, you can submit. And so I submitted my information and they took me as one of three teams. And it was a pretty modest sponsorship then. I think it was five grand, but uh, we did it. And we did so well with it. The next year they said, you know what, we're just going to sponsor you. And they gave me all three teams money, which was $15,000. And we worked together for a number of years. And when we were done, what happened was a Canadian company bought them and didn't care about their all-purpose cleaner. They wanted something else out of it. And, but when we were done, they were, they were writing me a check for 50K. Wow. Uh, and they did that a couple of years. And uh, that was, that was one of two or three sponsorships I had at the time. And the most surprising thing for me to come out of barbecue is that there is a way you can do it and, and uh, make a living at it. Not everybody can. It's, there's too many, it's a roller coaster and it, it's not for everybody. It's, it's, you have some nervous times, some good times, some bad times. And, but yeah. It's definitely emotional. I can tell you that. It can be. It sure <laughs> can be. That's no joke. That is no joke. And you know what? More so now for, for you and, and, and your group, probably than, than it was for me and, and our group back then in the early 2000s. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like there's so much more. Everything's on steroids and on a time warp speed right now that, you know, things change so fast. It's kind of hard to stay in front of it. Yeah. And I think that has to do with social media and the internet more than anything, but which yeah. we, we all, we had it, but it wasn't like this. And, I also see the money uh, dwindling in barbecue, but that's cyclical. There are highs and lows. There's a period of two or three or four years where there's a bunch of big money contests and a bunch of stuff going on and, 
And then there's two or three or four or five years where there isn't as much and there isn't as much money and, and they're holding back. And based on, on COVID-19, I would say probably we're, we're in for a couple of years, two or three years here where, where there's not much money involved because people are trying to get back on their feet. And they're yeah. not in that forward thinking promotion mode. They're in survival mode. Survival mode. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody, say a young cook that's about to enter competition barbecue? Um, I think I would give them three pieces of advice. The first one would be not to listen to their friends and family about how good their food is because it's not, yeah, not for competition. It's not. And, and that leads, it's, it's a disillusionment thing where a guy goes to a contest. He doesn't know what, what comp kind of food is winning. And he just knows his friends and family just love his stuff. And, and he, and he enters it and he works his butt off because it's, it's a lot of work and there's a lot of money involved and then he, he doesn't hear his name and then he never enters again. That's horrible for barbecue. But if you go into it uneducated and thinking that your food is amazing, you're going to be disappointed. So that's number one. Number two, I would tell you to spend the money to take a good class, but seriously do some research about the class just because some guy is hot on the circuit and he decides to make some bucks on a class. That's not reason enough to go to his class in my opinion because I don't know what he's going to teach me. I don't know if he's going to teach me anything. Mm -hmm. So do your research and find a good class to go to. That'd be number two. And number three would be once you get to the event, keep your head down and do your work. Have as much fun as you can. Stay focused on competing, but have as much fun as you can. And don't watch what your neighbor's doing. It's just going to mess with your head. <laughs> if you can get through all of that, then you're probably going to hear your name called in the first few events and you're probably going to get hooked on it. But there are so many distractions, the partying, watching what your neighbor's doing and second guessing yourself that, that so many people go cook an event and say, that's not for me. I'm never going to do that again. When, when have they done it another way? They may really love it. Is there any advice that you would uh, say they should ignore? Yeah, almost everything. Except <laughs> for, especially from a neighbor at a contest because there's just too much craziness. And I never really encountered that active deceit thing that you hear so much about. And honestly, I think when I heard about it most were from the old, old guys, you know, the guys before me, the, the guys that were cooking in the 90s. I think they used to actively try to get someone going down the wrong path because they were, you know, they, that was their edge. But, you know, just be careful what you hear and don't, yeah. don't take all of it as great advice. I'm not saying someone's trying to actively actively throw you off but but if it doesn't make sense don't do it i would agree with that and that, that was something i was very guilty of as a young cook second competition ever as the head pit master we were beside three eyes i spent most of my time like this just staring over there like uh -huh. uh, afterwards i little general brought me around and she's like you know maybe next time you could pay more attention to your cook than to somebody else's no joke I have a story from, from the late 90s. Ed Marin, he invited me to go cook with him in Florida in January of 02. So 9-11 was only a few months in the, in the rearview mirror and, and flying was crazy. But, but we were down there and had a little extra time on our hands. And Eddie told me a story that I'll never forget. He used to fly into cook places because he could borrow these FE-100s, FE now FEC-100s, from his customers and have them come out and cook with him. So... He, he showed up with maybe his briskets, bought everything else there. The, the customer had the tent, had the pit, and then he cooked this event, and then he flew home. But he would always 
have a jar of mayonnaise. And he set this jar of mayonnaise on his work surface under a tent now. They're, when you're flying, you don't get the luxury of having motorhomes and trailers like everybody does now. And he would do well, and then he'd fly home, and people were always wondering how the hell he used that mayonnaise. And, and finally, after you know a year or more of that, somebody got brave enough to come over and say, what the hell are you doing with the mayonnaise? And he said, I'm putting it on my sandwich. Why? I mean, they were so watching him that they thought that mayonnaise was somehow an integral part of at least one of his recipes that he was successful with. And hell, he was just buying a jar of mayonnaise to make sandwiches with while he was at the contest. So there's some craziness that people get involved with that I think, I think you could forego and have a much better time. I agree. And that's, you know, I have a question in here about how important is the art of psyching out your competition and psychological warfare. And it's one of those things that I don't ever engage in because I'm so consumed with what I'm doing that I don't have time to do that. I don't have time to worry about messing with somebody else. (laughs) I'm with you. I don't actively, I don't think I've ever actively done it, but some of my neuroses of organization and and cleanliness, I think maybe have done that to some people. I'll never forget little things where, you know, for a while there, Tuffy and I were both on the same circuit. And Tuffy's a very detailed person, but he's also very vocal about it. And, and he would say to me, I just, he thought my ribs psyched him out because I trimmed my ribs so well. <laughs> and I never thought of that. And nobody sees those ribs except for maybe a couple people. And we, we did an event somewhere in the South at a, at a NASCAR track where I couldn't have my trailer and we couldn't have our trailers, I think maybe. And, but I just set my spot up really well. Black tent tables with black covers on them. Had it had that screen, had screening on the outside of my, of my two canopies and just a really nice setup. And that kind of stuff got under Tuffy's skin a little bit <laughs> and maybe others, but I, I never, I never actively tried to psych anybody out, but I like to keep my stuff organized. I like to keep my stuff clean. When I roll into an event, I want my trailer to be clean. I want my truck to be clean. I mean, it makes you look successful. And some of those things will psych people out maybe, but I never did it for them. I was doing it for me. It gave me peace of mind. Right. Let me focus on what I was doing. If you're more prepared and and that puts you more at ease, it makes you a better cook. Kim, Kim says all the time, she's grateful that even though I'm not OCD about anything in my life, I am about barbecue. So it makes it makes it a better experience for both of us. <laughs> and, and, and it shows in your success, though. It does. I mean, I'm not saying you have to be that person, because I've seen plenty of cooks who are as unorganized as, as, as anybody and roll in and win a barbecue contest. So, yeah. you know, but, but I, think, I think a level of organization and a level of, of uh, attention to detail will make you more successful than not. Absolutely. So... How has your career and life experiences outside of barbecue helped you to be the pit master that you are? Well, the experiences outside of barbecue had to do with my issue of organization and detail and cleanliness. So -hmm. that's all helped me, even though I don't know how much of it's necessary. It just makes me feel better. I'll tell you where it probably helped me. I was 25 years. I was a, a contractor, a restoration contractor specializing in fire and water damage and specifically large fires. Mm-hmm. So I had to walk up to somebody's burned up house with them probably in shock and, and greet them and talk to them about how it's all going to be okay. Eventually when they're looking at a house that the second floor is caved in on the first floor and they, there's not much worth salvaging. And so 
I developed a level of empathy I think I didn't have before then. Because, and I don't like to talk like this, but, but while I was standing in that yard, my job was to get them to let me do the work for them. Mm-hmm. Not, not in a used car salesman way, but in a way that made them feel good about their decision. Because we had to work together for the next six months. And, and while some people handle, we'll call it a remodel really well, a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot to it. And they're trying to get back to a sense of normalcy. And, and they're trying to be a part of their career. And then they still have all these decisions to make. So. I, I gained a lot of skills, interpersonal interaction things that, that I think helped me a lot, not with cooking barbecue, but with interacting with people, mm-hmm. which I think helped me for sponsorship. I think it helped me a lot for classes. I think, I think it helped me a ton, but maybe not in the physical attribute of cooking barbecue, but in everything else. No, that's important. All that other stuff is important as well. What were some of the switching gears again? Because we all know that barbecue is, it's kind of a toy paradise. You know, we're always buying new things to play with and new, <laughs> new, new things. And what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments that you've ever made in barbecue? Well, okay. So if we tell your audience the truth, you sent me a list of questions. And <laughs> why well, I only read a couple of them. They were intriguing. But, but something related to this question is you put a $100 limit on it. And then you said I couldn't say a thermopen, which is, crap because a thermopen should be one of the first things you buy but okay everybody says thermopen that's the yeah yeah everybody says rod gray and thermopen so oh now i'm being a jerk you know what if we if we cut that cap on it i bought some vhs tapes this isn't my thing but i bought some vhs tapes of people cooking barbecue and i plugged the very first one in and there was chris Lilly trimming his meat with a 12 inch granton edge scimitar we called them Forstners because Forstner was the name that Victorinox gave them. A whole long story we're going to talk about. But anyway, now they've, they've gotten rid of the Forstner name and they call themselves Victorinox. Mm-hmm. And here he was with this 12-inch curved scimitar trimming meat with it. And it just looked like a monster of a knife. And, and I told myself, that guy's got that knife. There's a reason he has it. And I went and bought one, 100 bucks. And I got to tell you, I only need two knives to trim. And I trim three categories with that 12-inch grant and edge scimitar and and i love that knife and it's a hundred bucks so it's not one of my greatest toys but it's it's definitely one of my greatest investments and now i probably own a dozen of them but just because you got to have them but even in my classes people were like you really need that knife that size and when we're done trimming meat i think they get it but that's a that's a fabulous knife for me to trim three categories with a little hard to trim chicken with that knife but other than that sure yeah no, that's great. That's that's exactly the kind of information we're looking for for that question. <laughs> <laughs> so moving forward, what are you hungry for in competition barbecue? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. nothing. No. Uh, I mean, I think I think the cherry on my career would be winning a major, but but I I'm not chasing that the way I used to. I think about the years that I loaded up and went to Wyoming, and the first day I got to Cheyenne and then the next day we drove clear up to that one contest in Wyoming and a ways into it there was no more civilization really there was no cell phone service all the all the semis up there had these huge cattle these huge they called them cattle guards on the front of the vehicles but it was for plowing wildlife off the road if they had to and, mm-hmm. and just some of the stuff I did to chase you know chasing the seven winds thing couple of years there you get late in the season and you need that seventh win and the 
the craziness you go to to, to do. I don't crave any of that anymore. I love the people in barbecue. I love the people. Even though after I started teaching classes, I kind of shut down to the people because it just got a little ridiculous. People would come up to me and they all wanted something and they would all take your time and then you would be short on time to do what you needed to do. And so I've gained a reputation as, as not being very friendly on the circuit. It's not who I want to be, but it's who I needed to be to get my job done. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're by yourself. If you, you, you know this, when you cook by yourself, it's really pretty incredible how much time it takes and how much you have to do to get that done. And you don't have a lot of time to share with people. Right. Um, but, but there's not a lot I crave in barbecue anymore. I haven't had a win since uh, 07, July of 07, I think. You always want to win. I don't crave it anymore, but I'd love to have another win. But I'm just not sure how much more barbecue I'm going to cook. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to focus on the sauce and rub business. What I'm doing now with the pandemic here, uh, and maybe I'd like to have a maybe, – maybe what, what I crave in barbecue now is I'd like to have a successful line of rubs and sauces that's maybe a little bigger than two sauces and three rubs. You think you'll ever teach again? No, I'm okay. Never say never. But here's the thing. When I stopped winning, well, I didn't, I didn't hardly teach any, but when I finally taught that last class, which was a year ago, April at a killer, killer place to teach in Mississippi. And I think in my class was a little over half full. It was the first class I had never sold out. Every other class I've ever taught sold out. It, It told me what I needed to know. There are too many classes out there and too many people teaching them and they're dividing up the market and and I'm spoiled by having a full class of students um it's a great paycheck and I, I don't do it for the paycheck but you put so much work and effort into it that the, the paycheck is the reward for it and you know maybe I'll teach some backyard stuff to some folks that really want to learn to cook great food and then I'm not focusing on on it as part of my you know my career my the way I yeah. to myself but but I, I I don't know I know I I know I teach well. I know I do. And I'm not being boastful. I know I teach well, but I, I, I don't know how relevant I am these days, especially to the people who want to pay big money to, to learn to cook barbecue. But I'm going to tell you this. I, I try to attend a class a year. I did um, just to kind of see a different angle of it and set in that seat and see what else I can do to make the experience better. And there are a lot of folks out there who are teaching the money for the paycheck, teaching the class for the money. And, and not for the benefit of the people in those seats. Yeah. That bugs me. Yeah. That, bugs me. that was a purely selfish question, by the way. Uh, I never, yeah. I never had the opportunity to take your class and uh, it wasn't in my list of questions, but I figured I would fire it out there. <laughs> you know, there, are, there are, like you, there are some people who had a bucket list, not a bucket list. That's horrible. They just had a checklist that included taking one of my classes. Um, I get it because Sherry and I and whoever, I mean, whoever helped me would work so hard on, first of all, you got to cook great food in a class because you need to prove to those people that you really can do it. The problem is in barbecue, just because you say you can do it doesn't mean you can. And, and even though you can, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. And, and those are the worst days in class teaching for me. It's when, you know, uh, I'm, I'm the national brisket champion and my brisket sucks that day. And, and you can look back on it after it's done and say, well, this is this and this or why, but that doesn't instill any confidence in the people that paid a bunch of money and paid a bunch of money to travel to see you. So I don't even know what the hell I'm saying, but 
No, no, I never say never, never say never, but it would be more of a techniques thing and less of a competition thing. Yeah. And what's the point? Yeah. I have a class experience like that where I completely ruined the pork and I felt so terrible that, you know, I basically told, and it was a smaller class, but I had to tell everybody like, look, the next time you see me out there, please be in my trailer at one o'clock after you turn in your own box. I will give you turn in level food and tell you how I did it. And uh, I just felt extremely terrible about it. Early in my teaching career, I, that was my, that was how, that was my feeling too. Later in my teaching career, I would tell the class, look, this obviously isn't the best I can cook. And, but we would make it a learning experience. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can't pinpoint what happened, but a lot of times you can just, if you can express to them, a, this is not the level of product I turn out normally or I wouldn't be successful, but B, let's look into why this turned out this way. You're still teaching them some really great information by teaching them not to do that. Yeah, that's a great it's, point. It's still very valuable. Yeah, that's a great point. A lot of these podcasts and a lot of these questions are talking, they all talk about and speak to how successful we've been and how great we've been. But I think <laughs> what you just talked about was was fantastic because I think it's really the failures that we have out there on the circuit that we really take the most from. Do you have a favorite failure of a, during your competition? Luke, I have so many of them that, that, and, and, and I've forgotten about them because my mind can't hold them all. I mean, I have little failures where our ribs were really rocking one day and Sherry and I were working hard in the trailer and the, you know, the end of the turning window was, was approaching and, I had, I, I like to pick up my ribs with a knife under them, all of them at once and stabilize them with my left hand while I'm holding the knife with my right hand and move them over and then slide that knife out in the box. And I had these, these amazing ribs on my knife and I spun to put them in the box and my elbow caught some part of Sherry and they all went to the floor. <laughs> and they all went to the floor and we never once thought about picking those ribs up but we also knew we didn't have time to pick them up anyway. So I, I quickly already had the others cut and I grabbed six more ribs and turned them in and we got a call that day. Even though you're gonna have a failure, if you focus on it for the rest of your event, it's going to impact the rest of your turn-ins. You need to somehow find a way, like a, like a quarterback that throws an interception, you mm -hmm. need to find a way to go right back out there and, and, and still do your best. This isn't very detailed failure, but my biggest failure I remember is we were cooking Osage City, Kansas, which is an amazing contest. And Corey has taken that contest over from Don and, and you, know, you, you don't know what's gonna happen, but Corey's actually improved upon what Don Cobby had done. But this was like year two and we strung together four of the crappiest categories we felt we'd ever strung together. And so we were in the trailer, cleaning it up. We were both tired, we were both disgusted. And we were talking about never cooking barbecue again because we were still pretty young. That was probably 03, 04. And we drag our chairs to awards because it's the right thing to do. And we sit down and we cheer for all our friends. But in the end, we won the contest. <laughs> um, nothing will turn your attitude around quicker than winning a contest you thought you had no chance at. But, but the idea there, again, is some days you put amazing food in the box and it doesn't work out for you. Some days you put in food you don't care for and it does work out for you. And some days it really, really works out for you. And that was one of those days. 
that's yeah. when that's when we started to realize that we know when our food was good, we know when our food wasn't good, but we put it in the box and we don't really talk about it when people ask us how our cook was because because I'm I'm really hard on myself. Sherry's really you know scrutinizes our cook too and. And if you walk around saying all the time, oh, hell, I don't have a shot. And then you're up there on stage holding the big check. Sooner or later, you look like you're maybe a little bit disingenuous. But the truth is you have no control of it once it leaves your hands. And the best food I've ever cooked can, can finish mid-pack. And some pretty me- mediocre stuff can win your table and win, win that category. So it's best just to put it in the box and be done with it. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great answer. So now I'm getting, we'll launch into the rapid fire questions. These are my favorite questions of the, of the interview. Let's do this. Let's try this. All right. What is one of your favorite pre, during, or post-competition meals? My favorite pre-competition meal is when we all get together on Friday night and do, I don't want to call it a potluck because those aren't my favorite, but when we all get together and eat together on Friday or a group of us, and, and it doesn't matter what the food is. Yeah. It's more about the people around you and everybody's happy. And, and uh, that's, that's probably my favorite thing in barbecue. Post-competition, we would do a, a lot of salads and a lot of pizza were kind yeah. of our thing because they were easy and they weren't so much meat. Right. And we can't forget the kolaches either. Can't forget those. Oh, those are, yeah. <laughs> See, those are, those are morning competition things. Yeah, those are fun. Trish Trigg, that's Trish Trigg. I don't know where she learned it or she did it herself, but that's all from Trish Trigg. <laughs> What do you see about barbecue on social media that upsets or bothers you? Two things. People claiming, people claiming they have championship barbecue when they don't. And they know it, but they, it's all about marketing, and I get that. And people who aren't chefs calling themselves chefs. That may be my number one pet peeve. That is disrespectful to the people who put in the, the time and the money and the effort to go to school and be a chef. Just because you put on a chef's coat doesn't make you a chef. That's my biggest pet peeve. I like that answer a lot. What is your favorite present that you like to give to people? You know what? What a sad mundane answer I have for you. But I, Sherry and I landed on a, through Kickstarter, we landed on a brand of cast iron skillet called Finex. And it's turned out to be amazing stuff. And so we give those as gifts occasionally. And this Finex skillet, which now Lodge bought them. I don't know what that means for Finex, but the Finex cast iron skillet is my favorite gift to give. I'm going to have to look that up now. (laughs) (laughs) If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it that would get a message out to millions or billions, what would it say and why? By eat barbecue. (laughs) 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 That's all I would have to say. That's all. By eat barbecue. (laughs) I wouldn't tell them what it meant, what it was. They'd have to find the logo in their store. I don't know. I don't know. See, I'm a marketer and a a billboard, a billboard. There's so many opportunities from a billboard, but I don't know the answer to that one. I I just watched a show called the five billboards in Ebbing, Missouri. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That was pretty crazy show, but my message would not be negative. It would be positive. I'm just not sure what it would be. Buy eat barbecue is a positive yeah. message. <laughs> that, that's that's all. Yeah, that's it. Maybe with my mug, which I hate. I hate that that caricature on my bottle, but I get it. I get why it's there. <laughs> uh, last one. What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? I'm embarrassed to tell people what a freak I am, 
but I have a lot of unusual habits. I just, to narrow it down to one and tell you in a quick fire fashion, you just stumped me. You really just stumped me, but I do some crazy stuff, but it's like crazy organizational stuff. But I'm not like, I'm not like some clinical weirdo. I'm just my own weirdo. I have an Inya Anya drawer in my, in my bathroom at all times. So one drawer is for all the stuff you would put in you, like aspirin or cough syrup or whatever. And the other drawer is Anya, all the stuff you put on you, like, I don't know, like Band-Aids or sunscreen or whatever. And my wife thought that was the craziest thing ever, but she loves it now. Doesn't have to do with barbecue, but I have no, an Anya drawer. Doesn't have to. Uh, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's how you classify it. Where does this go? Well, does it go in you or does it go on you? And then you stick it in that drawer. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's a great. I'm, I might have to institute that. <laughs> oh, I mean, it, 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 if, if it's stuff in your bathroom, it only does one of two things. Exactly. You're totally right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Rod, I want to thank you very much for taking the time for me today. If you want to go ahead and, and tell us where people can find you and find your products online and maybe hit your sponsors, even if you'd like as well. <laughs> Yeti is my sponsor and they have been with me. You know, I learned something new about Yeti. I thought I was the second person they sponsored in barbecue, Aaron Franklin, but Leanne tells me I was actually the first, which is pretty incredible. I think, I think even that is passing me by a little bit. I know they're, they're kind of focusing more on, on chefs and barbecue people who are in barbecue restaurants, but, but I love the Yeti brand. I know people complain about their prices and there's all these knockoffs out there, but Yeti's a stand-up company and I, I, I value their, their support and I want to support them to the end. I just think their stuff is amazing. They do really good work, but you guys yeah. know where to find me, pelletnb.com and eatbarbecue.com. I want to tell you something, though. I'm watching you go from a full-time guy trying to cook a few contests to a guy trying to be a full-time barbecue guy. And, dude, you're hustling. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know how much of that will stick on the wall. I hope all of it does for you. But you really are hustling. I see the catering, and I see the YouTube, and I, the podcast thing is new to me. And I know you're doing more than that. And I expect to see some kind of a saucer rub out of you on the market someday soon and among other things, but keep after it. It's hard. There are a lot of people who will maybe speak poorly behind your back because they want to be what you are. Don't listen to the detractors. Just get it done. You'll get it done. You're too good a guy not to get it done. <laughs> you have too much fun. I've never seen you where you didn't have a smile on your face. That's infectious. It's important. It will make you successful. That smile will make you successful. Well, thank you so much. Those words of encouragement mean so much coming from you. And, you know, you mentioned earlier the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs. And I just always look towards the people who have done it. And that gives me the power to keep on forging ahead. So I really do appreciate you taking the time today. And you mentioned the smile. This mask thing is killing me because I tell people all the time, I'm like, I'm smiling under here. I promise you I'm smiling. So, <laughs> you know, that's funny. I didn't know I was reading people's lips because of my hearing loss. And I mean, I have these hearing aids now, but, but, uh, but the mask thing, it conveys too much emotion, your whole face. Yeah. And I, I am a person who reads people's faces and body language when I speak to them, because I can tell how they feel about it, whether they tell me the truth or not. And I learned that from that 25 years of standing in people's yards, trying to tell them that I would be the guy to rebuild their fire damaged home. And, 
and I use it a lot and the mask is taking some of that away for sure. Yeah, for sure. But I'll keep smiling. <laughs> yeah. They can tell by your eyes, Luke. They can tell. I know. The mask. <laughs> well, Rod, thank you again for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man. This is a, this was, this was fun. More fun than I thought it would be. So, <laughs> so I, I have trouble coming on people and being interviewed and talked to because if I don't have something new to talk about, so I turned down a ton of interviews because I, I just don't have something interesting to talk about. So I love your perspective. Uh, I love your questions are different than everybody else. And, and uh, I love what you're doing with it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Pitmaster, an old Virginia smoke podcast. Be sure to subscribe and like the podcast, rate the podcast, and to share it out with your friends. Also be sure to check out the Old Virginia Smoke YouTube channel as well at youtube.com slash Old Virginia Smoke. Our guests next week will be Jason and Megan Day from Burnt Finger Barbecue. You won't want to miss this one. For companies interested in advertising, please contact Old Virginia Smoke directly via www.oldvirginiasmoke.com. Pitmaster, an Old Virginia Smoke podcast, is edited by Chris Sedanka. Pitmaster, an Old Virginia Smoke podcast, is a property of Old Virginia Smoke, LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright 2020.